Welcome to Keeping It Israel, brought to you by First Century Foundations. This weekly podcast explores how your Christian faith connects to Israel and why standing with Israel matters. Now here's your host, Executive Director of First Century Foundations, Jeff Feuders. Hi, my name is Jeff. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us today. And my guest today is Baruch Sturman. Baruch is co-founder of the Petil Techelet Association. Baruch received his doctorate in physics from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and his master's in electrical engineering from Columbia University. For the past 15 years, Baruch has been a leading executive in the high-tech sector in Israel. He was instrumental in developing the modern techniques for dyeing Techelet used by the Petil Techelet Association today. He's published numerous articles on the scientific aspects of Tekelet as it relates to the Jewish law and writes extensively on the topic of science and Torah in general. He lives in Ephrat, Israel with his wife, Judy, and their seven children. Baruch, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you, Jeff. I'm very, very glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, it's our pleasure, and uh, this really is an intriguing subject uh, because of the fact that this this thing that we're talking about today, Tekelet, the the color blue, is mentioned so often in the Bible. Uh, you're, You're also the author of a book called The Rarest Blue. The remarkable story of the ancient color lost to history and rediscovered. And so we want to dive into that just a little bit. This is mentioned 50 times in the Hebrew Bible, a blue that was to be used on the fabrics in the temple, uh, on the priest garments, and on a thread woven into Jewish prayer shawls. Interestingly, and, and this is you know unique for me from a Christian perspective, Jesus would have worn this color because it was Absolutely. something commanded in the Bible. So talk to us a little bit about how this color was used in the Bible and, and why is it significant, first of all? What did it represent? Well, the actual Tehillet, uh, uh and it's, uh, uh, let's, let's call it its sister color, Argaman, purple, both of these come from a sea snail or a, a family of sea snails. They're called murex, and they live in the in the Mediterranean Ocean. And you can uh, you have a small gland inside of this uh, inside of this sea snail, which produces either the purple or or the blue, depending. And maybe we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, the actual discovery of these of the dyes or the fact that you could die from these sea snails is it predates the Bible. So we're talking about maybe 4,000 years ago, 1750 BCE, uh, the Minoan civilization in Crete, that was probably where these were uh, originally discovered. And once that was discovered that you could have these fantastically beautiful and long-lasting, never-fading uh, uh, fabrics that were dyed with, with these colors, and the colors themselves, blues and purples, this was unheard of in the ancient world. You had browns, you had maybe some red, yellows, uh, the earth colors. But blue and purple became uh, fabulously desired and fabulously expensive. And so anybody who was anyone wanted to, uh, to have these, uh, these uh, fabrics. And so we find them early, early on in the time of Abraham, we already have them being traded as precious, precious dye, uh, uh, dye stuffs, as presents to princesses and to kings. And, um, and as I mentioned, anybody who wanted to show off their status 
would be wearing these blues and purples. When the Bible comes, uh, the Bible does not deny the beauty and the, uh, and, and, and the value of these luxurious fabrics. But instead what it tries to do is to shift the focus away from the personal class uh, aspect, the, the, if you will, the greed and what this could be, how this could signify how great a person is. And rather it takes these beautiful things and sanctifies them. And they are no longer in the service of any one person's uh, status, but rather they are in the service of the king, or I should say the king of kings. And so you find the first mention of, of these beautiful, beautiful garments, Tchelet and Argaman, blue and purple. You find them in the tabernacle in, uh, uh, as coverings, uh, as curtains, as, uh, as the ceiling of the tabernacle. And um, then you find them in the, in the uh, priestly garb, especially in the, uh, in the priestly garb of the, of the uh, Kohen Gadol, of the high priest. Okay, the high priest wears a tunic, a me'il, a robe, which was clear tchelet, all 100% made out of tchelet. And this is, again, something that was worth at one point 20 times its weight in gold. So the average tunic, we uh, did the calculation, two and a half kilo. If you do the, uh, the calculation according to the price of gold today, you'd be talking about something that would be in the area of two, three million dollars. Okay, wow. so that's a pretty expensive uh, piece of a uh, piece of clothing. So the priest, the high priest, wore uh, a tunic which was all made of tchelet. The regular priest wore a belt which was made of tchelet. And each and every Jew, I'll call them mini priests. Each and every Israelite is commanded to wear one strand of tchelet of this beautiful, beautiful blue on their clothes. And so what you have here now is a mixture of something which is, reminds you of the holiness, right, of, of the spirituality, because it's something that was used in the temple. You have something which reminds you of royalty, because it was always experienced as something which only could be, um, could, could be afford. The only people who could afford it were the, were the, uh, were the kings and, 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 uh, and, and the generals and the very, very, very affluent. Yeah. And all of these things come together to tell the Israelite that he is part of something a lot bigger, a lot more important. Don't think of yourself as a farmer or as a baker or as a shepherd because you're wearing this little piece of godliness and this little piece of kingship. And that would put a different frame on a person's attitude. Hmm. And so the Bible says, you will look at it, at this strand of blue, at this strand of tchelet, and you will say, and you will think to yourselves and be reminded of all of uh, the commandments in, 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 in the Bible. And, and this came to be something that Jews identified with and Jews were identified by. The Israelites, as, as, uh, as you can see in, in many, many different ancient documents, were the ones who wore the blue. And uh, there are even some indications that when they were in Rome, the clavi, those uh, stripes that, uh, that were on the togas of the, of the, uh, of the Jewish uh, Roman uh, uh, 
people were uh, were not to be uh, they weren't any other color, red or purple, but rather blue. So this was something that was very, very, very important. And of course, Jesus in the first century, when uh, Tchelet was worn by by anyone, uh, a, a, all of the Israelites, he of course, of course, would have been wearing these uh, these strings on his clothes. Wow, that's that is incredible. And so. What I sort of picked up from all that is I like how you framed this sort of status symbol, but now sanctified, I think is the word you used. And and so the the Jewish culture has taken something that was uh, maybe the predecessor of, I don't know, designer clothing or, or something like that. And uh, but sanctified it for for holy uses in in that sense, the, the color itself would would that be accurate? Is that what I picked up? Absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, and in fact, what 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 is interesting is that the um, as I mentioned, the sister color to Tchelet is argaman. I don't know how well you can see the difference here. You know the quality of the uh, of the video, but this that I'm holding in my hand is a little bit more purple, and in my other hand we have the beautiful sky blue. Both of them, as I mentioned, come from a snail. This is our little friend. He's the Murex trunculus. Uh, and this is one of the f- uh, family uh, of Mursai, the, 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 um, the Murex that live in the, in the uh, Mediterranean Ocean, that produce these dyes. To the rest of the world, it was the Tyrian purple, the Argaman, which was really the most sought after. To the Israelites, to the Jews, it was the sky blue. And one can ask kind of the question, you know, they're both beautiful, they're both long-lasting, they both more or less come from the, you know, from the same place. So why would it be that, you know, that cultures, you know, kind of this resonated, the purple resonated more with the uh, surrounding cultures, be it the Greek or the Roman cultures or the Persian or the, you know, or, or, or any of the, uh, any of the, um, of the cultures of the Near East, the Canaanites, the Phoenicians, of course, the Phoenicians who were the greatest of dyers took their name from these, uh, from these dyes. This is called Porphyros in Greek, and this is purple or Porphyra. And so the purple dyers, the purple snail, the purple people were the Phoenicians. And they are really, really the ones who are associated with Tyre, their capital city, and Tyrian purple. So one can ask kind of why is it that the Israelites were so attracted to the blue while the rest of the world really loved the, uh, the purple. And I think that maybe you can find an answer. It's not, I, obviously, we can't know for sure uh, until we meet a Roman, but, uh, you know, barring that. But we can gain uh, maybe some insight from the fact that Julius Caesar is the first to declare that only the general, the victorious general, returning from battle is allowed to wear the highest, highest form of adornment in Roman society, which is the toga picta, all purple, trimmed with gold. Mm. So purple symbolized in the ancient world blood. Sometimes it signified the blood of battle, the victorious general. Sometimes it signified the blood of fertility, of childbirth. But it's very earthy. The blue, it brings you to a different place. The blue signifies the infinite sky, the infinite sea, right? It's actually uh, something that artists will really feel, uh, really feel, feel that that resonates with them as well. Eve Klein 
had a specific blue that he patented. And this was the blue that he saw when he looked at the heavens. Kandinsky, the great uh, Russian, the great Russian uh, artist, writes, the deeper the blue, the more it calls one to infinity. And that was, I think, what the Bible is trying to tell you here. Mm. It's trying to call you to infinity. It's trying to raise you. It's trying to give you aspirations, not to look down and not to look into the, into, into the worldly, but to look into the spiritual. And that is what the Bible says, underneath God's throne, underneath, uh, underneath the floor of the heavens, if you will, is the sapphire, the, 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 uh, the blue, which reminds you of the trelet. So trelet is really God's, uh, just like it's the covering in the, in the tabernacle, God chose to cover his world with the sky and with the sky blue as well. So that's where your thoughts start to go when you start thinking of this beautiful blue. Beautiful. I, I, I love that, uh, that, distinguish, that distinguishing uh, characteristic. And I think that, uh, you know, my mind's also sort of going here. You know, I'm thinking historically and in literature, you know, purple is, is um, also connected to, you know, royalty. Uh, which is a, a man-made thing, uh, kingship. You know, uh, the Israelites wanted a king. God said, well, you want a king, but, uh, you know, this is, this is what's maybe going to happen when you get a king. Uh, you know, the, the blue, more representative of, of God and his holiness and, and that idea of theocracy uh, also maybe would be a little bit of a distinguishing characteristic as well. Right. The Romans, as we said before, really loved purple. Pliny writes, you must excuse the Romans for their mad desire for purple. And they really were crazy about purple. Um, born into the purple, right? Which was literally the emperor would have a room that was completely covered with purple cloth and the little baby emperor to be would be born in that room. So it was really something that was seen as, uh, hmm. uh, as something that... Um, was associated with the emperor, with the empire. And that was actually one of the problems that Trelet had. Because as years went by, starting with Julius Caesar, on to Nero, and on and on, the emperors became completely enthralled by, uh, by their purple. And, and the blue, kind of, you know, like, by association. It was something that brought them fabulous wealth. Because the, you could demand whatever price you wanted. So if you owned... The, uh, the, the means to manufacture as a monopoly these dyes, then you could just make tons and tons and tons of money, literally tons of money. And so slowly but surely, the Roman Empire starts to put restrictions on first and foremost on only wearing, only certain people can wear the blues and purples. Afterwards, only people can um, produce the blues and purples, and it has to be taxed very, very heavily. And then eventually, only the Roman Empire's dye houses are allowed to be involved in this. And Theodosius, the emperor, and Justinian following him, eventually come to, the, come to the point where they say, anyone who owns blues and purples, right, that, are, that come from the shellfish, that is a... A, uh, a sin that is a uh, transgression that is tantamount to treason and punishable by death. Hmm. So the poor Jews who are trying to wear their little strings on, you know, 
on their uh, uh, on on their uh, garments. You know, they, right, all of a sudden, right. they're, 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 you know, in order to do this, you had to risk your life. Not only did you have to spend tons of money, you know, an enormous amount of money to be able to get these strings. And not only were they rare because essentially all the snails are being farmed by the empire. But but even then, if you finally get, you know, like a string that was handed down from father to son for, for generations, you're, you're running the risk of, uh, of uh, some uh, Roman, uh, you know, some Roman guard is going to see you wearing it and then may decide that, you know, he's going to throw you in jail. And these types of things are recorded in the, um, uh, in the Talmud. Eventually, things got so bad, and we probably believe that this happened around the 7th century, in the great, great, great wars between the Romans and the Arabs, the dye houses were completely, completely destroyed. And in all that turmoil of the 7th century, um, the method of how to produce trailer and even the sea creature, what the Talmud calls the Chilazon, what we now know as the Murex, but all of that knowledge was lost. For 1,300 years, Jews were not able to wear trailer. There was no such thing as trailer. No one, none of the, uh, none of the far-flung um, communities of Jews, no matter where they were in the world, no one had trailer. It was completely and utterly lost, and not only to the Jewish people, but to the entire world. That piece of information, that piece of knowledge, what was the source of the dye, the dyes and how they were made, all of that slipped into obscurity, and trailer was lost. And for all of those years, for 1,300 years, Jews wore white on their fringes, on the talit, on their prayer shawls, but Tchelet was a distant, distant dream. One day, one day, we will be able to, uh, to, to find it again and have that back. And uh, I've been very, very, very blessed to be part of the story of the rediscovery of, uh, of Tchelet. And it really has been an amazing, amazing thing to be part of that myself, my wife, my family. And you know, you, you referenced how much money that um, that this might be worth in today's market. How many how many of these uh, snails have to die to create? I don't know. Say one one garment. What give us a, a bit of a sense of that? Well, uh, a garment is a is a good question. Uh, we um, in in our organization we we produce just these strings of of trailer, just small little strings. Let me see if I have any small little strings here. Well, you can see, actually. My daughter is getting married in a few, in a few, um, few days, and this is the prayer shawl, the talit, that uh, her uh, her husband to be the groom will uh. will will put over the two of them under the chuppah, under the canopy. We take a talit, and the uh, the groom puts it over both the uh, uh, both the uh, the bride and the groom together, and they make a beautiful blessing. Right. He who has sustained us and brought us to this wonderful, joyous occasion. And so we did this together, myself and my, uh, my son-in-law-to-be. And so basically it's just one smaller, you know, uh, one or two strings on each of the corners of the prayer shawl. And you can see that they're knotted in very, very intricate ways. So we, uh, we sell these strings. And these strings are basically for that, uh, for, for the talit or for the, uh, for the talit undergarment, for the smaller talit. Um, in any event, so how many snails does it take to make one set of trailers? It sounds kind of like a joke, but uh, <laughs> how many snails does it take? It takes, uh, it takes probably somewhere in the area of a few tens, a few tens of snails. Mm. 
And um, we are very, very cognizant of the fact that we have to be very, very careful with this resource, right? Even though these snails are being eaten all over Europe uh, and in many places, actually, all over the world, but all around the Mediterranean, they're going to be eating far, far, far more uh, of these snails, you know, on a, on a daily or monthly basis than even if all of the Jews in the world and everybody wanted to wear, you know, to wear strings of tzelet, we that would not uh, make too much of a dent. But we're very, very cognizant of the fact that we this is a very precious resource. We have to be very, very careful with it. And um, so some of the things that we're very careful about, when we fish, we don't fish in the same area year after year. We try to let the populations grow back. Afterwards, uh, we, never, uh, we don't concentrate in one area. We try to use as much of a wide, uh, wide area as we can for collecting our snails. And at the end of the day, if we see that we've collected smaller snails, we throw them back into the ocean, let them reproduce, and hopefully take snails towards the end of their, of their reproductive uh, you know, lives. Um, but nonetheless, it is, uh, it is something that, we, uh, that we're very, very careful about. And uh, we are, are actually very, very worried about the Mediterranean as uh, in general. It's a very delicate ecosystem, and it's changing now, along with the rest of the world. So uh, we have to be very careful about that. Um, anyway, so I hope uh, that, that answers the question about the, uh, the amount of snails. And it is a process to collect them and to, and to work with them. It gives a little bit of an idea uh, how, how many would be required in ancient times to do the kinds of things, for example, that were instructed for the tabernacle or yeah. for the the temple, it must have right. been, it must have been staggering, uh, you know, the the number that would have to be harvested and and uh, so so that's kind of what I was trying to get at. Okay, yep. get back to get back to the extinction of uh, you know this this color and yes. and how Tehelet was rediscovered. How did you guys do that? So. So as, we, as I mentioned, around the 7th century is when we believe Tchelet is lost. The Talmud, the end of the Talmud is the end of the 6th century, and Tchelet still exists then. The rabbis of the Talmud talk about Tchelet. They had it, they wore it, uh, even if it was rare, but they still had it and wore it. The Midrash in the 8th century already mentions that now we no longer have Tchelet, we only have white, and so therefore it's somewhere in that area we believe Tchelet was, was, was lost. Maybe about 200 years ago, people started rethinking this whole idea because 200 years ago marks the archaeological expeditions that start reaching the uh, whole uh, Middle East and Near East, the archaeological expeditions that come out of Great Britain, that come out of France, that come out of Germany. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, start, they start finding some interesting things and especially the archaeology of the Holy Land and the coast of uh, the Mediterranean. And they start uncovering mounds, uh, 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 let's say for Tyre or, or, um, or uh, uh, Sarepta or uh, some of the other areas along the coast. Uh, and they start finding these mountains of shells, far, far too many shells that could have ever been used for diet. And instead they realize that this must have been some kind of an industry. And along with that, they find coins from the Roman period, but specifically coins that were minted in Tyre um, and Sidon. Mm -hmm. And these coins have as a symbol of Tyre these snails minted on them. So the archaeologists okay. are really the first to 
to make the discovery or at least raise the possibility that these snails were part of that ancient dyeing industry. And then along come the chemists, and the chemists actually start to look at these different dyes, and you have the great Italian chemist, uh, um, the great Italian chemist, the great German chemist, the French chemist, and they're all getting involved and actually realize that there are compounds within these snails which can give these fantastic, fantastic, beautiful, long-lasting dyes. Hmm. And this is already 200 years ago and, and so on. What's the problem? The problem is that you have three facts that were believed by various, various scholars, rabbis, and so on. The first fact is, let's call it a fact, that the murex snails are the source of the ancient biblical dye trelet. Second fact is that these snails can only produce purple. And number three, trelet is blue. Those three statements cannot all live together and play well together. Hmm. One of them has to go. So what the secular scholars believed is that the Jewish tradition was, was mistaken. And all of the liturgy and all of the, uh, all of the commentaries and all of the legal uh, writings which speak about Tchelet as being sky blue must have been mistaken. Maybe the Jews didn't really know the difference between purple and blue, or maybe, you know, color terms changed, or maybe simply the tradition is mistaken. And uh, they believe that since the murex is the source of Tchelet, and murex only gives purple, there you go. There were rabbis... Uh, who believed, no, that can't be the case. And instead, this must not be the source of ancient Tchelet and started looking for maybe other sources of Tchelet. And that was another possibility to go down. The great, great researcher, the greatest of researchers into the whole topic of Tchelet was a man, a rabbi by the name of Isaac Herzog. Does that name sound familiar to you? Yeah. Isaac Herzog is the president of Israel. Now, how could he be the president of Israel and have been a great Tchelet researcher 100 years ago? Well, the answer is that it was actually his grandfather. His grandfather was Rabbi Isaac Herzog, who was chief rabbi of Ireland and then became the first chief rabbi of the state of Israel. He was an amazing, amazing man, and he wrote a doctorate when he was 25 on everything related to Tchelet that he knew of in his day. All about the archaeology of the Murex, all about the fact that scientists believe that it's purple, but he did not like that. He said, no, no, our tradition must be correct, Tchelet must be blue, and he ends his doctorate with a big question mark. I don't know what it can be. I want to believe the archaeologists, the chemists, the historians who tell me it's murex. I want to believe the fact that Tchelet, according to our tradition, is blue, but I can't square that circle. Uh, Rabbi Herzog died in 1959. His grandson was born in 19. 19- 60, just a year after he died, which is why he's named in the Jewish tradition, at least in the Ashkenazic Jewish tradition, we don't name after live relatives. Uh, we name only after relatives who have passed away. So Isaac Herzog is named after his, after his grandfather, the president of Israel. Anyway, there you go. Big question. What are you going to do about it? And the answer to that question was only discovered 40 years ago. Um, a, a chemist by the name of Otto Elsner, professor here in, in Israel, was doing research into the snails and into their dyeing, and lo and behold, he found that when he did the dyeing with these snails and broke them open and took out the glands and added the chemicals and did everything that he was supposed to do, he indeed was able to produce 
a beautiful purple dye. But that was only on cloudy days. On days when there was intense sunshine, which you can get in Israel, more or less from March till November, there's right. nothing but sunshine. If you find a cloud, you know, it's pretty rare to even find a cloud in the sky. The smell that's involved in the dyeing process is really, really something that I really recommend that everybody experience at least once in their lives. Because every other smell in the world will not match that in terms of its incredibly potent uh, stink. <laughs> so you'll live your life a much, much happier person if you have realized that you never have to, let's say, for example, like me, go to work every day in the trailer factory where that's what you are going to be in, you know, involved in and experiencing all day long. But that smell caused this Professor Elsner to take his work and do it by an open window. Wow. And that's when he realized that at a very, very specific period, only at a specific stage within the dyeing process, if you expose it to sunlight, you're going to get this absolutely beautiful, beautiful blue, as opposed to that purple, which is also a beautiful color, but not trelet. With that, the mystery of trelet was solved. Mm. And I think that there's something very, very, very beautiful in that. Because in order to make this most beautiful and spiritually uh, elevating uh, color, you really need two parts to it. You need the snail, which lives on the bottom of the ocean, which is a lowly creature, pretty much, you know, spending its time eating, uh, uh, eating, you know, detritus and all kinds of other garbage on the uh, on the bottom of the seafloor. And at the same time, you need the sunlight straight from heaven. Mm -hmm. And it's that mix of of the the extremes of human potential that come together to make holiness. And it's only, you know, the, the, the Bible, as they say, was not given to angels. It was given to people. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about a person is a person can be the highest spiritual being and the lowest. And we are all that at different times. And it's that mix which really gives you something which brings you close to God. I think that's a beautiful message that the Trelet, you know, can remind us of. Yeah, very, very beautiful. A powerful connection to to light as well, which uh, I think is amazing. Mm -hmm. Now, now, this was discovered, but you are and have been very involved in the development of some of these techniques. What was your role in rediscovering the biblical blue and developing modern techniques for, for using it today? Well, okay, so let me, let me finish off the story. Otto Elsner discovers uh, this incredible, uh, incredible piece of, uh, of scientific information, and he publishes it. Actually, he gave a talk in 1985 outside of Tokyo at a conference and writes this up in the Journal of Oriental Dyers. Now, as you can imagine, the Journal of Oriental Dyers is not read by many rabbis, uh, <laughs> at least not on a, uh, you know, not on, a, on, on, on some kind of a regular basis, let's just say. So rabbis didn't really hear about, um, about this incredible discovery that Otto Elsner had made. There was one rabbi, though, who had been really researching this uh, and trying to find it. His name was Rabbi Tevger, Rabbi Eliyahu Tevger, a young, young rabbi at that time, 
trying to make sense out of all of what he had known. And he came to the same problems of the purple and the blue, but he still believed that there could be a way to do it, went to the beach, broke open the snails, and tried to figure out what was going on with that. He had a friend who was a chemist, and you know one thing led to another, and the chemist said, yeah, I just read this paper, and told him about Otto Elsner's work. So Rabbi Tevger was really the first to take it out of the laboratory and bring it into the synagogue, if you will, mm-hmm. and made one strand of Torah, four strands of Torah, to put it on his talit, on his prayer shawl, and that was the first set of Torah ever in 1,300 years. Uh, Rabbi Tevger made his set and was uh, pretty happy, actually, to, um, to live with that, right? He had discovered it, he wrote about it, he wrote a book about it, um, and that was, uh, he wrote a book about the laws, mainly, about, uh, about Torah, and that's where, where he left it. About a year or so later, this was 1987, about a year or so later, a friend of mine, uh, Joel Guberman, had a tragedy in his family. His, son, his, his, uh, his brother was killed in, a, in an auto accident. And, and Joel wanted to take on a commandment in a more extensive way, in, in some kind of a fuller way, and started researching the commandment of wearing, um, wearing tzitzit, wearing the talit, wearing the prayer shawl. And... Um, and he was in a library and went over to the library and said, do you have any books on uh, prayer shawls, on the laws of, of, of how to make the tzitzit? And uh, the, the librarian said, oh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. There's a guy over there who also is, you know, interested in it. And he pointed to Rabbi Tevger. So Joel went over to Rabbi Tevger. Rabbi Tevger goes, yes, you know, I actually found the trelet, the biblical command uh, that, that was lost for so long. Joel said, perfect, beautiful. Let me have some. So Rabbi Tevger laughed at him. He said, it took me, you know, three, four years to make my one set of, uh, of strings. I can't, you can't just have one. There is no such thing as having one. They don't, you know, you, know, you have to make them and it's going to take years. However, he said, you know what? If you know anybody who knows how to scuba dive, then maybe that would be a little bit easier. Rabbi Tevger, you know, went in with his snorkel, couldn't get really underwater for too long. Joel said, I, I have a couple of friends who I know, they know how to scuba dive called up me, another friend of mine, Ari Greenspan, and we, you know, were very, very up for the uh, adventure, not knowing, you know, where this was going to lead or if it would lead to anything. We just, you know, Joel called up and said, I met this rabbi. He says, we should all go diving for snails. You know, you want to come along. Hmm. And we did. We went along. And uh, uh, that day, uh, we had a long, long ride up uh, with... um, and we met Rabbi Tevker. Oh, we went up to the beach all the way, all the way north, almost, almost to the border of Lebanon. And, uh, and uh, we went diving. We found 293 snails that day, which ended up being enough at that point for five talitot. And so I have the second pair of trelet, or the second set of trelet in the world after 1,300 years. Wow. Not the first. Uh, but that was really a day where... That was a day for us where everything in our lives changed, basically. Myself and Ari and, and Joel. Because we became completely consumed by this. At first, it was something which was curiosity, developed into a little bit of a hobby where we would here and there go up and, uh, and, and go, go diving for snails for different, uh, and try to make, you know, here and there a few sets, one, two, five. And uh, it became... More than that, though, it became at some point an obsession that we really needed to get these, this out to anybody who wanted. And very, very slowly, very slowly, but consistently, nonetheless, more and more people were interested in trying to 
to, to, to renew this commandment. To, to, this is something that God, Moses said to the Jewish people, to the Israelites, from God's mouth. This is what you should be doing. You should be wearing these, these trelet strings. And so slowly but truly, more and more people wanted it. And from a curiosity to a hobby to an obsession, it more or less became a mission. Mm-hmm. And we founded this organization to start getting strings out, to produce these strings. And today we are producing more than 25,000 sets of trailer each year. And uh, there are people wearing trailer on their, on, their, on their prayer shawls in every community around the world, from Melbourne to Minnesota, and from Oslo to, 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 to Crown Heights to the most, most religious and the least, least religious of all, of, of all people. It's a beautiful message that resonates, I think, with, every, with everyone who, um, who is trying to bring a little bit of spirituality into their, into their day. You start the day, and you know, you take your tzitzit that I have here under my, uh, under my, uh, my shirt. You start every single day, and you look at your, at, at your tzitzit, and you say the words from the Bible that talk about the commandment to wear the trelet. You kiss them, and contemplate the fact that the possibilities for today are absolutely endless. Today can be a day where you reach the highest heights of the sky and plumb the depths of the ocean. But at the same time, it can be these white strings which represent the emptiness, if you will. Mm. And that can be the day as well. It could be a completely empty day. And what is it going to be today? This is really a, it's a clarion call. It reminds you, what is your day going to be like? What are you going to be, what are you going to accomplish today? Or what are you going to miss accomplishing today? Uh, and and, and it, it, uh, it, uh, it fills you with a sense of awe at your potential and a, and a sense of, uh, of mission, of mission. And I'm, 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 I feel extremely, extremely blessed that we have had the opportunity to be part of this, uh, of this renewal. It's incredible. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. And I, it, it's, it's really uh, quite intriguing. Now, for somebody who, um, you know, might want one of these, uh, you know, we bring tours to Israel when that used to be possible. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you buy a prayer shawl outside of the, uh, you know, the garden tomb in the little alleyway there, or you can go into the Jewish Cardo and, uh, you know, pay pay 150 or $200 for a prayer shawl there. Are any of those likely to have the, the genuine article? There is. I mean, we, have, uh, uh, we, we do sell in a number of different places, and, uh, but the easiest thing to do is to, uh, to look for us on the Internet. The first thing I would do is to read the story. So this is a great, uh, a great book. It's yeah. a great book. I'll tell you why it's a great book. <laughs> it's a great book, but first of all, I think because the content or just the story is an amazing story. I'm not talking about, you know, we, we were blessed to be part of this story. But the story could be told by anyone, and it would be, uh, it would be fantastic. It happens to be that the story is told by myself, which is not so exciting, but also by my wife, who is an excellent, excellent writer. So, uh, so I think that we have really a, a wonderful book, and it won the Jewish Journal Book Award for, uh, for the year that it came out. Hmm. Um, so the first thing I would do is, if you want to hear the story and read it, because what I've, touched, what I've touched on here is really the tip of the iceberg. This is a story that has all kinds of very, very interesting intricacies, 
we, we try to touch on, on a lot of the different areas, even the chemistry uh, of the dyeing, the biochemistry of this incredible snail, uh, the science behind the color blue. We called our book The Rarest Blue. Oh, you can't see it. It's like a mirror image. We called our book The Rarest Blue because blue is extremely, extremely rare in nature. And you don't think of that. You think of the blue planet. Oh, my God, everything is blue around us. Nothing is blue around us. Mm. Take out the sky, take out the sea, nothing else is blue. Here and there, a little butterfly maybe, or a rock. Very, very, very rare. Even blueberries are purple. They're not blue. Sure. So, so um, we get into that. But also the story of Tchelet, how it was lost, how it was attempted at uh, the attempts at rediscovery, I think it's a fascinating story. Once, uh, you, you know, I think that you have that feeling that this is something that you want to be part of, the story of Tchelet. Uh, and the story that's still unfolding, then you can search for us on the internet. Our, our, we are Trelet, T-E-K-H-E-L-E-T. But I think if you, if you look for Trelet, no matter how you spell it, you're going to find our organization. And once you find our organization, you can find out how to order online. That's the easiest thing. The book is available on Amazon, but, uh, but our Trelet is available from us. Uh, we can tie it onto a number of different ways, a uh, number of different ways of tying but more importantly, a number of different things. You can have prayer shawls with blue stripes, with black stripes, with white stripes, and you can get all kinds of different uh, different things. And we'll, uh, we'll we'll do the tying for you and get it out to you. And within a few days, maybe a week too at the most, uh, it'll be delivered to your doorstep anywhere in the world. Amazing. And uh, uh, and so that's probably the easiest and best way uh, to find out or, or to be part of this, and uh, to be part of this biblical tradition that uh, that dates back. Since the days of the Bible, as you mentioned, 49 times the Bible mentions the word, the word uh, uh, trelet. So it really is something which is very, very, very much part of, uh, of the biblical world, part of the Mishnaic world in the early, uh, early um, first, second, third centuries, and then on and on all the way through, uh, through, through the time that it was lost. Uh, into the late uh, late fifth uh, and sixth century. Amazing. So it's something that's very very ancient, but also extremely extremely topical and modern, to the point where the flag of Israel is really two stripes of Tchelet. That's where it came from. The flag of Israel is a reminder. Uh, it, it's 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 a real reminder of the fact that uh, that. The blue and the white were always the colors that the uh, the Jews and were identified by, and the Jewish state identifies by by nowadays. And maybe there's something else a little bit more to that. The sixth century, seventh century, with the Arab conquest of this area, right, and the, the destruction of Roman rule, that was pretty much the time which when Israel was Israel, the land of Israel was destroyed. And from that moment on, the center of Jewish life moves into the diaspora. Mm -hmm. Whether it's in Babylonia, whether it's in Spain, whether it moves to North Africa, to Europe, wherever it's going to go, and it's going to, you know, go through its incredible uh, travails, torments, high exuberant points, and, 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 and terrible, terrible low points. It's a story of movement of not finding a home. And all of that time, Tchelet was lost. The Jews come back to the state of Israel, and that's when 
you know, when, 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 when they want to find their authentic identity once again, and that identity somehow or another is going to be bound up not only with the flag and with the state, but somehow or another in God's, in, in, in the way God works, that identity is bound up again with, with the Tchelet. And it's only now here when we came back to our ancestral land that we can once again regain that important, important component, compo- component to our ancestral identity, which was, which was the Tchelet strict. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful story. Yeah, very beautiful. And you sort of stole my thunder a little bit because, believe it or not, early on in our conversation, when you started talking about this color blue and, and uh, you know, Tekelet and the amazing story about how it sort of all connects back to, you know, the sky, the covering of the earth and so on, the flag of Israel immediately came to my mind. And I was going to finish with that question. Uh, you know, is there any significance to the color of the Israeli flag? So thanks for yes. uh, connecting that dot even before I got to the question. It's it's, uh, it's really an amazing thing. Herzl was a completely secular Jew. Herzl, who founded or was the founding father, the idea, the ideologue behind the modern uh, Jewish state. Uh, and um, Herzl was a socialist, and uh, um, and his ideals were mixed in a lot of different. There were a lot of ideologies that were mixed together with Herzl's desire to have a state that would primarily be for Jews. And we're talking in the uh, late 1800s. Mm-hmm. And Herzl's ideal for a flag for his state was a complete white flag with um, eight golden stars. Eight golden stars which represented the eight hours of the work day and the workers' revolution, which would, you know, become the symbol of, uh, of this socialist Jewish state. And, you know, when he came up with that idea, he was ready to go to it with the first Zionist Congress where, where you know, this idea of Zionism was going to be presented. And uh, his friend, David Wolfson, said to him, no, that's not going to be our flag. <laughs> he said, the Jews already have a flag. It's the flag that we've wrapped ourselves for all of these generations with when we cried out to God that we want to come back to our land. And that's the Talit. Mm-hmm. The Talit, its colors were authentically blue and white. That will be our flag, he said to Herzl. And Herzl went along with it. And I think that that was actually a pretty smart move, I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Looking back. <laughs> oh, that's, that's fantastic. Well, listen, I want you to tell people who are listening and who are watching exactly how to get to your website. Tell them yes. where they can find your book, what the book's called, and uh, make sure that uh, they all understand. So you can find our website. It's going to be trelet, T-E-K-H-E-L-E-T dot com. Once you get there, you can uh, look around. There's a, a, a tremendous amount of resources there. There's videos, there's lectures, and there's a link also to, uh, to purchasing Trelet if you want to purchase the strings or if you want to purchase the, um, the Talit already tied. All of that is there, and you can find it. Uh, you can look around the site for that. The book is also available there, but the book is also available on Amazon. It was written by myself and my wife, Judy, and, um, and it's called The Rarest Blue. The story, uh, the remarkable story of the rediscovery of uh, the ancient blue dye. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's available on Amazon. I guess if you put in the word trailer or the uh, rarest blue, you'll find it. 
Uh, I hope you enjoy it. I really, really hope you enjoy reading it. And if you do enjoy reading it, we really, really hope uh, that you uh, give it a good uh, thumbs up or a good rating on uh, on um, on Amazon. You know, mm. it's a little bit of a problem. You know, because who wants to read a book about a biblical die? So even if you know, if and we believe it is a good read. You can't get somebody, you know, they're not looking for it. It's not like somebody's going to say, hey, you know what? I really would love today to find a book on the biblical die. Right. So, uh, so, you know, it really, the only way that it really gets out there is, is from word of mouth. If people enjoy it, they tell their friends about it. And uh, so I, we would appreciate that if you liked it. And if you have any comments on it, we're always, always open to, uh, to listening to, uh, to anything that anybody has to say. Uh, you can find my email, uh, Baruch, B-A-R-U-C-H, at trela.com, or, you know, you'll, you'll find me if you look, uh, you look on Google. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, it's great. And I can honestly say that before today, I, I wasn't looking to read a book about the ancient biblical die. But now that you and I have talked, uh, I'm very much looking forward to checking that out and, uh, and getting a copy for myself. And I would encourage you, Absolutely. if you're listening, if you're watching, make sure that you, uh, that you check out the story as well. This has been fantastic, Baruch. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, I pleasure. wanted to talk a little bit about some, some history too. You know, the, there was a, a dyed cloth discovered in Timna a while back. Yes. Um, uh, to what biblical time does that date, and, and was this died in the same way that we've been discussing? Exactly. Yes, that was uh, discovered at Timna. Timna is a little bit north of Eilat, so it's all the way south uh, in the um, um, in the uh, in the desert, just a little bit north of uh, Timna. There was uh, there, there were copper mines there, and this dates back to. Uh, 10th century BCE. So we're talking about 3,000 years ago. This is the time of David and Solomon. And it was purple. It was a, it was, um, a, a purple uh, cloth that was found, which just goes to show you the amazing, amazing steadfastness of these dyes. Yeah. You can tell under an analysis, you can tell under analysis, under chemical analysis, what uh, the components of the, dye, of the dyed cloth were and whether or not they came from a sea snail. And this purple was absolutely shown to come from a sea snail. Wow. You don't have blue that has been found that old. Unfortunately, we only have a relatively new uh, blue that was found, which is only from 2,000 years ago, not from 3,000 years ago. But in the Judean desert on Masada and a little bit north of Masada in the Murbad caves, you find some cloth that was dyed blue. And that blue came from a snail not from a counterfeit blue, or I shouldn't say counterfeit, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to denigrate anybody's uh, dyes, but there is another source of blue, and that comes from plants, uh, but you can tell the difference under analysis between the two. Mm. So we don't have any dyed fabrics from before 2,000 years ago that were blue. We do have purple. However, recent excavations at Shikmona, which is near Haifa, have unearthed shards of pottery that must have been used as these giant pots which they did the dyeing in. Okay. And some of those shards are dyed with, stained with purple, and some of those shards are stained with blue. So, uh, and that dates from anywhere around the 9th, 10th century BCE. So you're still talking about the fact that in Solomon's times, when Solomon would have 
would have built his temple with Tchelet, we now actually have that we can look at with our own eyes Tchelet that could have been used as part of the dyes that were used in the first temple when Solomon built it. So it really is an incredible, incredible time where Tchelet is being rediscovered and ancient Tchelet mm-hmm. is also being rediscovered. The Timna finds are fantastic because they talk about and they show, they talk to the fact that the dyeing industry existed back in those days and the uh, the shards in Shikmona also point to the fact that the ancient dyers knew how to make both purple and blue. It was a discovery that was only rediscovered 40 years ago. But those ancient dyers were way, way, way ahead of us. Wow. And they would have known so many, so many things that we have yet to learn. You can only gain incredible, incredible respect for the people that were doing this kind of science and art and technology thousands and thousands of years ago and how proficient they must have been with the limited access to the modern um, you know, methods that we have For today. Sure. It really is an amazing yeah. thing. Yeah. Well, that's incredible. And, uh, you know, you say you, haven't, you don't have an actual example of a, a dyed cloth uh, with the Tehelet blue yet, but I, I would emphasize that yet. There's uh, still lots of discovery that's happening on a, on a daily basis, pretty much in, uh, in Israel. And so right. uh, we look forward to the time when we can talk yeah. about... Well, 2,000 years is not bad. 2,000 years is not bad. You know, if you and I look as good... <laughs> if you and I look as, as good after 2,000 years, you know, as that little piece of... Uh, of Tchelet, well, yeah. I'd be pretty happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me, me as well. Well, Baruch, thanks so much again for uh, for being with us today. Uh, I've learned a ton. I hope that if you're watching, listening, you've learned as well. It's really been wonderful. Wonderful to talk to. And uh, we wish you all the best. Shalom. Shalom. Shalom from Israel. Israel. That meaningful name is mentioned more than 2,300 times in the Bible. It is from this land, nation, and people that Christianity emerged some 2,000 years ago. But since that time, Christianity has become mostly disconnected from Israel, and without an understanding of the Jewishness of Jesus and our Hebraic foundations, so much of the depth and meaning of the Bible is lost. First Century Foundations is committed to helping Christians reconnect and stay connected to Israel. We invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can view our TV programs and weekly video podcast, Keeping It Israel. Follow us on Facebook and our other social media platforms. Let's reconnect to Israel and stay connected. Find out more at firstcenturyfoundations.com.